Four preachers met together, like they often do, and during the conversation, one of them said, you know, our people come to us all the time, and they pour out their hearts, and they confess certain sins and certain issues. I think we should do that too. Confession is good for the soul, right? They all agreed, and one of them started this spontaneous confession session by saying that he had a problem with losing his temper on occasion. And the second got some courage, you know, motivated by that confession. The second preacher confessed to liking to smoke cigars. And the third one then confessed to liking golf so much that sometimes he even faked being sick so he could play on the weekends. When it came to the fourth preacher, he wouldn't confess anything. He just sat there looking down at the ground. The others pressed him, saying, Come on, come on, we we confess. We poured out our hearts. You can't stay quiet. Finally, he answered, Okay, okay. My sin issue is gossiping, and I can hardly wait to get out of here. Sometimes that's how we... We treat confession, we, we treat it as something that's fine as long as we confess the problem and the issue, but we don't really do anything to change it. That our confession ends with the statement. It doesn't translate into action or difference. I think all of us are familiar with half-hearted, empty confessions. You know, the kind that are done more out of obligation or pressure than from a place of sincere and heartbroken humility. We've been on the receiving end of those types of confessions where someone maybe confessed to us or said that they were sorry, but you know, you know they didn't really mean it. It was half-hearted. Or you've been the one that's given that kind of a confession at some point in your life. So I think we all are familiar with that, with the half-hearted, the empty confession that doesn't really show a change of heart and it doesn't really result in a change of action. Certainly, Scripture is full of those examples. Pharaoh, after each plague struck Egypt, you know, he said, Oh, I've sinned. Pray for me, Moses. But then he just went right on with being sinful and hardened his heart. Moses' brother, after they left Egypt with the golden calf, one of the most pitiful examples of uh, confession in the Bible, and certainly one that's half-hearted and empty when when Moses came down from the mountain and he, he sees Aaron, he says, Aaron, what in the world did you do? How did you let this happen? What, what did you do to allow the people to cause this much sin in the camp? What, what happened with this golden calf? And Aaron says, oh, please don't be angry. You know, I, I got, I got the, the earrings and the gold and the bracelets and the jewelry from the people and and because they, they forced me, you know, they prevailed on me, they pressured me, and so I kind of, I, I gave in and I, I threw the stuff in the, the furnace, but out came this calf. I mean, I just, I'd love to be there in that moment to see Moses' face, you know. Um, so, I mean, Aaron, you know, he admitted his, his uh, part to play in that, but he certainly didn't take the full responsibility and, and he certainly didn't seem to be very repentant in that moment. Numerous occasions of the kings of Israel and Judah after the kingdom split when confronted about their sin by God's prophets time and time again, it was 
half-hearted at best when they confessed, if they confessed. So we, we see example after example in Scripture of what half-hearted, empty, non-sincere confession looks like. But thankfully, those aren't the only examples of confession in the Bible. We're going to, as we continue in our practical prayer series today, we're going to see the prayer of David, and it certainly is a prayer of confession, and it's, it's the right kind of confession. It's the right kind of prayer of confession. It's sincere, it's powerful, it's everything a prayer or an attitude of confession, a mindset of confession should be, and therefore it is an extremely practical for us. We can see so many things in this prayer that we should apply to our own lives and model in our own confessions, in our own prayers of confession before God, and also it gives us some things to take and apply even to other people, to our mutual confession, but especially and most importantly to our confession before God. So the prayer of David is what we're going to consider. It's part one of the prayer of David. We're going to look at another prayer next week that is not a prayer of confession, but is one of just astounding worship. But today it's a prayer of confession. Before we look at the main text where we're going to be today, I just want to give you a brief summary and give you the context of the prayer that we will read. This prayer of confession is in direct connection to what is unfortunately a very famous episode in David's life, a very famous episode of sin. David's sin with Bathsheba is what this prayer that we'll look at today is in connection to. That's in 2 Samuel 11. But what happened in that time in David's life, the text tells us that at the time when kings go to war, in the spring when kings go to war, and that's an important statement in that passage that really sets up why David was there and why he shouldn't have been there, where he should have been, and if he had been where he should have been, this whole thing would not have happened. He should have been with his troops. He should have been out to war. There's a whole sermon in that in itself. But he stayed home, and he's out at, in the middle of the night, late at night. He's, he's wandering on the, on the palace on the rooftops, and he's looking out at Jerusalem, and his eyes see something they shouldn't see. His eyes see it, and instead of looking away, instead of making the choice to avert his eyes, he gazes, he lingers, he lets his eyes linger, and, you know, be careful little eyes what you see, right? And his eyes linger on Bathsheba, bathing, and those lingering eyes lead to a lustful heart, which then leads to acting on that lust. And he calls for Bathsheba after affirming who she is, who, whose wife she is. He already knew, but he, knew, he found out that this was indeed Uriah's wife, his friend, his close friend, an advisor, a counselor, part of his special forces, if you will, his selective group of soldiers. Think uh, Secret Service, think special, a special unit. He knew Uriah very well. He had fought side by side with Uriah. This was Uriah's wife. That didn't stop him. He had her come to the palace. He used his position and his power and his influence, and he slept with Bathsheba. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. 
to hide this sin and this development. He, he has Uriah come off of the front lines, tries to convince him to go to his house, sleep with Bathsheba, so that when it's discovered that she's pregnant, when the baby is born, it would just seem naturally that it's Uriah's. Being a man of more integrity in this moment than King David, he refuses to go and enjoy the comforts of his home and enjoy the intimacy with his wife. When that doesn't work the first night, David brings him again and he gets him drunk, thinks that that'll do it, still doesn't work. Uriah maintains his integrity and he sends Uriah back because it it didn't work. His strategy didn't work, so he sends him back to the front lines. But this time he sends a letter to the commander of the army and he says, when the fighting happens and at the point in the battle and the place in the battle where the fighting is the most intense, Move Uriah to the front, and then you withdraw from him so that he may be killed. Sure enough, that's what happens. Word comes back to David that Uriah has been struck down. He allows Bathsheba to grieve, and then he brings her to his palace. He marries her, and then he tries to go about life as normal. But that text also tells us the thing that David did displeased the Lord. So he sends Nathan the prophet to him. You know, I wouldn't like to have been a prophet, would you? They got a bad, bad deal. Speaking truth to power in really difficult circumstances. So here's Nathan. He's faithful to what God sends him to do. He goes to David, gives him a parable about a a sheep which would resonate with David who was a shepherd. This little innocent sheep that was taken abused, killed, and David responds as you would expect him to with anger and demanding justice be done on the person that stole away this one innocent sheep from the the man who loved it like a child. And Nathan points the finger at King David and says, you are the man. You stole away what didn't belong to you. And David, in that moment, of conviction, acknowledges his sin and says, I have sinned before the Lord. And it's that setting and that context that then lends itself to what we read in Psalm 51. That's where we'll be. Before we actually look verse by verse at this passage, I want to point out something before we dig into that, something you're going to see developed in the text, but also something you see in a companion text. There's something that David wrote. It's not so much a prayer as much as a statement, and it's still about the same incident with Bathsheba, and it's about the time before he confessed. So it's it's kind of a segue for us before we look at the prayer of confession itself. It's in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, and What this text shows us, and what we see even playing out in Psalm 51, it's a truth that David learned for sure personally, and it's something that we need to learn, we need to remember, we need to keep in mind, and it's this. Here's the statement before I read you the companion text and before we look at the prayer itself. Sin doesn't change our status with God but it does damage our relationship with Him. It's important to understand that. As a believer, when you come to Christ, 
when you receive Him and His work on your behalf, then you can be assured that sin doesn't change your status with God. Your status with God depends entirely on the full, complete, perfect, finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's where your status comes from. That's where your merit with God comes from. That's where His favor on your life comes from. That is eternally secure because it was paid for and secure by Jesus Himself. So our sin that we continue, unfortunately, to commit as a believer doesn't change our status with God, but, but, an important but here, but it does damage our relationship with Him. Just as parents, when your child does something wrong, when they, when they sin against you in some way or, or some form, they don't cease to be your child. You don't cease to love them. They're still your child. You still love them. You're still their parent. They are still secure in their relationship with you. They're still part of your family. doesn't change that, but it does affect your relationship with them. There's something wrong there. There's, there's a wedge. There's a barrier. There's a division that has now entered into the relationship, and that has to be made right. That's how it works. Psalm 32, 3-5 points this out in vivid detail. And again, this is a companion text to what we'll see in the prayer itself in just a moment. Psalm 32, 3-5, David says this, When I kept silent, and it's likely he went maybe as much as a year before he actually acknowledged and confessed his sin. When I kept silent, he just tried to sweep it under the rug and act as if nothing happened, go about life as normal. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God's hand, was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Which means, pause, consider, weigh this. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. What this shows us and points out is not only that sin doesn't change our status with God, but it does damage our relationship with Him. We, we see that in verses 3-4, through four, but we also see a wonderful and, and beautiful truth that we need to understand and apply to our own lives, and that is that confession and repentance are the prerequisites of a restored relationship with God. Confession and repentance are the prerequisites of a restored relationship with God. And when we confess and when we repent, as we saw in the verse 5 of that passage, then our relationship that was damaged by sin gets restored, and it gets renewed, and reconciliation takes place. But only, only when we confess. And that's what makes this psalm, Psalm 51, and this prayer so important and so applicable to all of us. Psalm 51, I'll be reading from the CSB translation, and I will be reading to verse 13. There's still a few verses left in the passage, but we won't finish that for our purposes today. We'll stop at verse 13. So Psalm 51, 1-13. Here we go. 
God's word. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Notice that David starts in right away with asking for grace. And he wouldn't ask for grace if he didn't understand fully his need for it. Grace is getting something that we could never possibly deserve or earn. And that's what he's asking for. He's saying, God, I don't deserve your kindness. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve you looking my way at all with anything but judgment, but I'm asking for it anyway. I am in need of your grace. He didn't make excuses. He wasn't coming to his own defense right away. Well, see, the, the thing is, God, God, if, if Bathsheba hadn't been up on the rooftop, he wasn't making excuses. He wasn't trying to divert attention. He said, I'm in need of something. I need grace. God, be gracious to me. And look at what he's saying. He knows that it's according to or that it's attached to. And this is grace. God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. He's not saying, because I'm the king, because I have walked with you all this time already, because I've written so many wonderful songs already praising your name, because I've done this and I've done that. There's no entitlement here. There's no expectations based on who he is or what he's done. He says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. The Hebrew word there is hesed. And it means eternal, steadfast, loving kindness. It's the whole character of God. There's so many other words. There's no direct translation that directly applies to hesed. There's so many different words that that all fit with this word. But here it's faithful love. It's loyal love. God, I have not been loyal to you, David is saying, but you are loyal. And so I'm appealing to your loyal, your faithful love. Please, according to that, be gracious to me. According to your abundant compassion, if you have the ESV or another translation, it might say abundant mercy. That's a fitting word as well. When David said here, according to your abundant compassion, It's a fun Hebrew word to say. It's raham. You have to sound like you have a little bit of phlegm in your throat. Raham. And it means literally womb love. It's the tender, unique bond a mother feels for her yet-to-be-born child. Isn't Isn't that just amazing? Isn't that beautiful? An amazing picture. So, David is saying, according to your loyal and and boundless love, according to your your tender mercy, the way a a mother has this bond and this love for her yet-to-be-born child that is in complete need of her, according to that, in that way, God, be gracious to me. I I need you. Then he continues the rest of Verse 1, he says, blot out my rebellion. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. See, he's acknowledging, he's admitting that what he did was absolutely rebellious. It was outright 
and utter rebellion against the rule of God in and over his life, which is what all sin is. It's rebellion, plain and simple. It's rebelling against the authority, the lordship of God in and over our lives, every part of us. Blot out my rebellion. This is David saying, cross out the black lines of my sin debt. God, you, you have your book and it's open and the ledger is there. And I have debt before you, which is another thing sin is. It's a debt before God. And he's saying, by blotting out my rebellion, David is saying, please cross out the black lines of my debt that are in your book. And David knew that only God could do that. Only God could do that. And that's why he's appealing in this way. My friends, that's exactly, let's, let's take it over to the New Testament. Let's take it over to what we understand about where we are with God. And, and the only reason we can be in a good standing with God, that's exactly what Jesus fully accomplished on the cross. The blacking out of sin debt. And when we come to Jesus, when we trust Him and Him alone for our salvation, the black lines of our sin debt before God get crossed out. And I emphasize crossed out. Because the way they get crossed out is by the red lines of His sinless blood shed on the cross. That's how we get our sin debt blotted out. And only, only by that. By the red lines of Jesus' sinless blood. Well, after he appeals to God's grace and his faithful love and his abundant compassion and asks for that sin to be, to be blotted out, the rebellious nature of his sin, verse 2 says this, completely or thoroughly, leave nothing out, completely, thoroughly, wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. I can't escape it. I can't hide it. No amount of sweeping it under the rug is going to work. I can't divert my attention away. And my friends, this is what is true of someone who is truly in Christ, truly God's child. You will not be able to just ignore and divert your attention away from your sin. It might work temporarily. It might work for a little bit, but it's going to keep coming back. It's going to haunt you. It's going to hound you. It's going to make you miserable. And you know what I'm talking about. Many times in our lives, we've tried that. I don't think there's one of us that hasn't delayed confessing and acknowledging our sin. And you know how miserable that's made you. Maybe you're here right now today and you've been trying to run from your sin. You've been trying to hide it. You've been trying to ignore it, wish it away, go about life like normal. How's that working out for you? Probably not too well. David says, I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. And really there's an unspoken statement here, an unspoken truth, and that's that he's understanding his sin is always before God. Our sin is always before God, and, and it's, we need to understand that and realize that it should be always before us too, and, and only when we bring it before the one who it's always been before, only then can we be free of it. I'm conscious of my rebellion, 
I'm not hiding it. I'm not trying to say it's anything other than that. I'm acknowledging it, and my sin is always before me. And then he says something incredibly important and also incredibly interesting. Verse 4. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil. This evil meaning the evil and the sin with Bathsheba. Adultery, murder, lust before that. Lust, adultery, murder. A vicious, horrible cycle of sin. That's what he means by this evil. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. And at this point, we should all think, wait a second. What do you mean against you and you alone, David? What, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about Uriah's family? What about the soldiers that you made complicit in the murder by ordering what you did? So why is it that David says against you and you alone... I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. It's because every sin, every sin, no matter what it is, no matter who it might be against, every sin is first and foremost a sin against God. And that's what we all need to understand and remember and apply. Every sin is first and foremost a sin against God. Yes, David sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah and many other people. But it was first and foremost, most significantly, most importantly, it was a sin against God. And and here's the other thing about that. Every sin that we sin against other people, that's still a sin against God. Because when we sin against someone else, we're sinning against someone that was made in the image of God. And therefore, it is also a sin against God. But we need to understand it is first God's standard and God's holiness that we are violating and breaking. It's His law. He is the ultimate lawgiver. And He is the ultimate standard of truth. And He is the ultimate source of holiness and goodness. And so every sin is an offense against His holiness. And every sin is a violation of His standards and His laws. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means we have missed the mark of the standard of God's holiness. We've fallen short of that perfect standard in every sin. And David understood that. He's saying... More importantly than my sinning against other people is my sin against you and your holiness. Doesn't mean that he didn't sin against others. He's just saying, in my life right now, in my mind, in my heart, I'm understanding that more tragic and more of consequence than my sinning against other humans is the fact that I have sinned against you. And that's what we need to understand in our own lives That's how we need to look at our sin. That's how we need to respond. It's bad that I sin against other people. But my sin against other people is not ever as grave or as serious as my sin against God. Second thing that we see here 
is that for our confession to be sincere, still with this verse, with verse 4, with what he said in verse 4, for our confession to be sincere, we have to see our sin the way God sees it. And that's what David is doing here. He's saying, you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. I, I've sinned against you and you alone. And therefore you, you God, you're right. You're just when you judge this sin. You have no blame at all when you pass sentence and judge this. Because you are the lawgiver. You are the standard. You are the Holy One. And, and it's all against you. And, and he's seeing sin the way God sees it. This isn't just, oops, I made a mistake. Oh, too bad. This isn't, well, guess there's nothing I can do about this. This is just the way I am. I'm just a man. What am I going to do? We've all been there, right? We've either given that type of response or heard that type of response, a feeble excuse when a confession is made. Or maybe you've, you've heard the deflection, you know, yeah, I messed up, I was wrong, but let me explain to you why. No, this wasn't that at all. This was David seeing his sin the way God sees it as vile and inexcusable and a total violation of his holiness, his character, his rule, his standards. And for our confession to be sincere, my friends, church, we have to see our sin the way God sees it. Back in Psalm 51, verse 5, David continues with this amazing confession, and he says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. I didn't have to learn to be sinful. I didn't develop sin. I was guilty and sinful and full of iniquity, at the moment of my conception, this is the, the doctrine of total depravity right here on display. And it's what's true of every human being. Verse 6, this is a, a contrast here. I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. I was, in other words, I, I was conceived completely in sin. I was full of sin, saturated by sin. But look at verse 6. Surely... You desire integrity in the inner self. And you teach me wisdom deep within. In other words, my sin, just as I, I didn't learn sin, and just as my sin is not limited to my body, it's not externally driven, it's not surface level only. My sin goes much, much deeper. I'm full of sin, and I have been ever since I was conceived. The problem, though, is, God, I know you desire integrity not on the outside. You don't desire integrity and righteousness just on the outside and, and the physical. You desire integrity. You desire purity in the inner self. And you teach me wisdom deep within. In other words, you're looking for inner holiness. Uh-oh. There's a problem. Because deep inside of me, ever since I was inside of my mother, I've been sinful. So I, I don't have that ability to be a person of integrity where it counts. A person of purity, righteousness, and true wisdom before you deep within. What's the answer? What's the solution? Verse 7. 
Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop was used to apply the blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus. Hyssop was also used by the priest in their purification ceremonies to declare someone clean and free of disease. And most significantly, I think, is the fact that a hyssop branch was used to lift up a sponge of sour wine to Jesus to wet his dry mouth as he hung on the cross as the ultimate perfect Passover lamb. And right after he received it, he cried, It is finished! And like I said before, it's the blood of Jesus that purifies us and continually cleanses us. David certainly was making that connection with the the blood of the Passover and the purification of the priest. He's saying, only you can do this. Only you can make me clean the way I need to be cleaned down deep within. And as a result of that, verse 8, as you do that, as you clean and purify me and wash me of all of this, verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Knowing our sin breaks God's heart should break our hearts as well, don't you think? Knowing our sin breaks God's heart should break our hearts as well. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Verse 9, turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. Don't you, don't you hear Jesus saying something similar when you read that? You should. Let's connect that with the cross again as Jesus hung there on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason is because Jesus received and and felt the full weight of all of His Father's judgment and wrath on our sin placed on Jesus so that the Father would never have to turn His face away from you and me. And that's why Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've turned your face away from me. It's all so that He wouldn't have to turn His face from us. David says, please do that. Turn your face away from my sin so that I can see your face again looking at me. Verse 10, he knows that for that to happen, for God to be able to turn his face away from his sins and blot out all all of the guilt, something's going to have to happen there that he can't do himself. Verse 10, God, create the same verb used in Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. Barah, God, create a clean heart for me. Notice that. I can't do this. I can't manufacture it. No one else can. God, you create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Something only God can do. David knew that. Do you know that? Do you understand that? Do you remember that? Do you believe that? that what you need only God can do. In verse 11, Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Listen, anyone that's truly in Christ doesn't ever have to worry about that. Praise God for that. Hallelujah. David didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He knew that his predecessor Saul had God's Spirit taken from him. And David is saying, don't do that, please. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And in Christ, we don't have to fear that. Verse 12. 
Restore the joy of your salvation to me. And sustain me. Again, two things that only God can do. Sustain me by giving me, imparting to me something outside of myself, by giving me a willing spirit. That's going to have to come from you too, God. That's what David's saying. I can't do that. I want to experience the joy of your salvation that I had before I I gave myself over to the sin. Restore that to me. And then as I'm joying in your salvation again, please God, sustain, maintain, keep within me this willing spirit. A willing spirit to live for you and not for myself. Oh, we need to be praying that, church. And then here's the result of all of this happening. All of this comes down to verse 13. Then, then, in other words, as you do all of this, all of these things I've been begging you and pleading you for and pouring my heart out to you, God, asking you to give me that I can't give myself, as you do that, once you do that, and there's an aspect of faith here, there's an element of faith, then, once you do all of that that I'm asking you for, because I know you will, because you've promised to do it, because you are faithful, then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. That should be the result of every believer. As we acknowledge and confess our sin before God, and as we experience the grace and forgiveness and mercy and love of God that we have no rights in ourselves to experience, our response should then be, God, use me to go and bring others to this restoration and this this reconciliation and renewal that I am able to experience. Once we receive forgiveness and And mercy and grace, that should not make us arrogant. Rather, it should make us even more humble. We should be utterly amazed that we were able to experience God's grace. And we should have this insatiable desire to go out and teach others about it and bring them to the God that forgave us. We should go out and say, look, look, there's forgiveness for you. There's mercy available for you. There's grace to be found. Let me bring you to him. But it all comes back to the confession. And here's here's what I, I leave you with as we wrap up. Cleansed sin, which we all need and we all want. Cleansed sin is confessed sin. Cleansed sin is confessed sin. And you could the opposite is then true, right? You see that. If you don't confess sin, you don't. You don't have it cleansed. Cleanse sin is confess sin. First, by coming to Christ for salvation. That's, that's where you start. Then, continually after becoming a Christian, not for salvation again, but for restoration and renewal from the sin that we can still commit. Cleanse sin is confess sin. Proverbs 28.13, I'm just going to read this. And uh, this is from the ESV. Both these texts are that I, I close with. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them, that's, that's key, confession should lead to repentance, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 1 John 1, 9 says, 
if we confess, and the Greek word that he used there was homologeo, that means say the same thing as, see it the same way, and that's what confession is. It's seeing our sin the way God sees it. If we confess, if we say the same thing as God does about it, if we see it the same way, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, that and is so great there, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. So what about you? What do you need to confess? What do you need to agree with God on? about the sin in your life? What do you need to, what's in your life, what sin is in your life that you need to quit hiding, quit trying to ignore and say, yes, God, yes, I have sinned against you. I see it the way you see it. I acknowledge this. I confess this before you. I need your grace. I need your mercy. You alone can cleanse me and renew me deep within and restore the joy of your salvation. Do you need to do that today? What haven't you done that about? And then secondly, what is your confession like? Is it half-hearted? Is it empty? Is it just, oh, sorry. Oh, messed up again. Sorry about that. Or is it, is it the crushing agony that we see on display in David? Realizing I have broken not just God's law, but I've broken his heart. What about you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing prayer. Thank you for the example of David that though he sinned greatly, he was also greatly forgiven because you, you are a great and gracious God. Thank you that in Christ we have even what David did not have, which is the permanent indwelling presence of your very Spirit. And may your Spirit convict us of our sin constantly. May He continually lead us and draw us to true, sincere confession like we see in David in this amazing prayer. Help us to apply this to our lives. I pray if there's someone here who has not yet come to Christ for salvation, they have no hope of being forgiven of, of any sin that they ask you for if they have not yet come to Christ, receiving that permanent and eternal cleansing. So let them start there. Let anyone not in Christ come to Him right now, this very moment, and receive the forgiveness and the cleansing of their sin entirely so that then they can get perpetual cleansing as they go through life until you call them to be with you. Thank you for first saving us, and then thank you for providing us that continual daily cleansing that we still need. All in Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen.